0: pray together. Father in heaven, we do uh, ask that you would come and join us here, Father, not just in the season of Advent, but in this very moment, God, that your spirit would fill this room. God, that you'd fill our hearts, our souls, and our minds in such a way that leads us to the rejoicing that is found in your arrival, the rejoicing that is found in the saving work of Christ. God, as we enter into this Advent season, we do so humbly and with tremendous gratitude and anticipation. I'll prepare our hearts, Father, not just for this season, but now for the reading of your word, that it would speak to us and change us and shape us and mold us according to your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We love you, Father. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Thank you, Matt and Sarah and the rest of the worship crew. As always, for leading us in what is one of my personal favorite uh, Christmas songs, and I love finishing the Thanksgiving holiday and coming to church this first Sunday of Advent, being able to take advantage of Christmas music and the spirit of the season. I hope and trust each and every one of you all had a great Thanksgiving break and have also come here today with that same sense of joyful expectation and anticipation for this Advent season. Uh, I want to ask you a question uh, as we begin. Do you ever find yourself just totally immersed with a song, right? You hear a song maybe for the first time, and it just grabs you, and you don't even really know why it grabs you. I mean, it could be for a lot of different reasons. For me, when I find myself loving a song, it tends to be the beat, the rhythm, the melody, something that just kind of draws me in before I even really know what the song is about. I just like it. And, and I think we can all kind of relate to that sort of experience with music. I know I've seen that a lot with my younger son, Wu, lately. Wu loves music, as does everyone else in our house. But it will be so funny because we'll be out eating dinner somewhere or in a store somewhere, and all of a sudden you will hear music played on the loud speaker overhead, and Wu just will instinctively start dancing. I mean, he just starts moving. And I crack up at it every time because I'm like, this kid doesn't even know what the song is about, doesn't know what the lyrics are. He just loves the music. And I think we were all that way. Now, granted, in my later years, I learned how to restrain my impulse to dance in public, although I did just demonstrate for you. But I find myself drawn to these songs. And I think many of us, we can find ourselves liking these songs without even really knowing what they're about, right? Without even really grasping the point or the message. In fact, One example of this that I would draw your attention to is the one that we just sang. Uh, In fact, that was one of my favorite songs growing up, as I just mentioned, and part of the reason was because I loved the melody. It was beautiful, and it kind of just naturally pulled me in every Christmas season. But what I really loved was that one verse, or that one word in the chorus, rejoice, and that's how I always heard that song, was that it was a call and an invitation to rejoicing. And then I'll never forget, not too long ago, actually it was this past Easter, where I really kind of had a different shift in understanding of what this song was really about. Uh, we, were, we were doing a different approach to our Easter service. For many of you that were here with us, you know we, we actually took a time to try to tell the whole story from creation to the return of Christ. And we did it in a very unique way of trying to present Scripture and then weaving in certain songs that accentuated certain parts of that story. And so when we got to the part of the story of, of exile one of the most difficult seasons of God's people, a season that is filled with, with pain and suffering and remorse, we were looking for a song that would capture that spirit, and that was when we rediscovered the beauty of this song that we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And when I went back and I looked at it more intentionally and more closely, I realized this is not so much a song of rejoicing and praise, but a song of lament, a song of longing. <clears throat> a song of, of yearning. Let me listen, or let me read to you the words again. O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, for Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Well then, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. Death's dark shadows put to flight. O oh, come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Now listen to the words of that song, and it hit me. I'm like, Man, this is a song of profound longing. And for so much of my life, I saw it as a song of rejoicing. And that, to me, is a great example of how all of a sudden we can have this shift Right, where maybe what drew us in was the rhythm and the melody, but then all of a sudden we understood the actual point, we understood the actual message. And I go to great lengths to explain this and the way that we can often respond to music in such a way because I believe that serves as an appropriate metaphor, a metaphor that I want to draw upon throughout the course of this message today. It's really a metaphor for life, right? That there are certain rhythms, certain melodies, certain beats that can draw us into a way in which we live. And we can almost begin to live our life in such a way without fully recognizing what's the point, what's the message, what's the intent, what's the purpose. I think this is especially true for Christmas, is it not? Excuse me. A lot of times we enter into the Advent season and there are certain rhythms, certain melodies that we naturally gravitate towards that kind of dictate our approach to the Christmas season. We got Christmas lights, we got Christmas decorations, we got advent calendars, we got shopping, we got food and food and more food. And then we have all these different traditions that we build upon and we just kind of go through the season dancing to these certain rhythms and melodies without always stopping and reflecting upon the point. We got shopping, we got presents. And that that to me was probably what first set that rhythm and melody for me when I was younger, right? It was the presents under the tree. I loved opening presents, right? What child doesn't and I would always look forward to this time of year for that very reason. I got so excited every time I saw the number of presents beneath the tree start to grow throughout the month of December. And I'd get so pumped to go see which one of them might be mine. Especially if there was a larger one that was placed under the tree. Right? If there was a huge one placed under the tree, I'd run over there to see which name was on it. If it had my name, I would respond with sheer excitement and without it it would just be utter disappointment, you know, that I didn't get the larger gift under the tree. And then Christmas morning would come, and I would try to accumulate all my presents. And then inevitably, I'd get to the last one, and as soon as it was open, there was a level of sadness that it was over. But most of my Christmas experience as a younger kid was receiving. And there is this lyric in the background, right, often spoken by my, my mom or my dad or another adult there that would try to reiterate this important lesson that every child needs to learn, hey, it's better to give than to receive. And I don't know how, I don't know when exactly, but as I matured and grew, there was a shift as that lyric became more prominent. I began to understand what Christmas was really about. I started thinking more about the gifts that I was going to give rather than the ones that I was going to receive, more thought and attention devoted to the people that would be receiving those gifts. And now here I stand as a father with children who run under that tree and look for their presence with the same sort of enthusiasm that I did. And I get such joy out of watching them receive the gifts that we've given as parents. And I've gotten closer and closer and closer to understanding that very important lesson, that it is better to give than receive. And while it doesn't fully take us there, it at least takes us to the fringes of what I would submit to you this morning is truly the essence of Christmas. The power and the beauty of understanding the benefit of giving rather than receiving. That really what Christmas does is takes us to the heart of our creator, who embodies in his own character, in his own nature, that very truth, that it is better to give than to receive. And that's the sort of exploration into truth that I want us to go through this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. This will be the passage that we use throughout the series of Advent for the next four Sundays, we're going to hang out in this one section of Philippians chapter 2. Now, we've looked at this passage recently. In fact, if you were with us in the season of Lent, we looked at chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which are going to be the verses that we use over the next four Sundays. And we used it as the first Sunday in Lent as we talked about the different names of Jesus. This is one of our main passages that we use to reference. But as we talked about then, it was so rich in content. It was really um, inappropriate, not inappropriate, but it was just uh, unfair for us to only dedicate a few minutes to it on a Sunday morning, and so I'm excited to go be able to go back and dedicate more time to it through the course of this series. But even then, I think we'll find ourselves wanting a little bit more because we know that this is one psalm, or not psalm. This is one passage that is so rich with meaning that that there are so many books written, so many commentaries devoted to this one section, five through eleven, that is often referred to as the Christ hymn that we could dedicate so much time to it. Now we'll have the chance to go back and revisit it with a more thorough exploration. Now one of the things I want you to keep in mind as we enter into this discussion this morning is the nature of this church in Philippi and the context in this letter that was written to the Philippians. What we can uh, remember is that the church in Philippi was in a part of a, a cultural atmosphere, a cultural ethos that was really proud to be Philippian, now, part of that is because the city of Philippi was a military outpost. It had a lot of war veterans that lived there, and as a result had received a special designation, a certain status within the Roman Empire. Right? It had certain benefits. If you were a Philippian citizen, you had benefits that other colonies didn't. You could buy and sell property. You, you were exempt from certain taxes. You were, had full protection under the Roman law. There were a lot of different things that you were able to benefit from, as a Philippian. And so as a result, people were proud to be Philippians, right? That was a huge part of their identity. And so Paul writes this letter to kind of challenge that, right? Almost to say, hey, you're you're gravitating to the wrong impulses and melodies and rhythms of this song. You're missing the actual point. Your identity is not being a Philippian. Your identity is in Christ, right? Of the 104 verses that make up this letter, 51 of them, have a direct reference to Jesus or Jesus Christ or Jesus Son of God to continually emphasize this point that our identity is in Christ. Everything centers around him. And so we're going to have that in our minds as we approach this one particular section in chapter 2 that really brings all this to clarity in Paul's uh, assertion of the importance of Christ and what we discover from who he is and his very nature. And so what we're going to do is we'll look at verses 5 through 11, for the next several Sundays, uh, breaking them down bit by bit. But today, I want to read this section in its entirety. So we're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 11, but our focal verses today are going to be verses 5 and 6. So just know that as we read through it together. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. So I love the way that Paul sets the tone for this Christ hymn that we find in verses 5 through 11. You read through those first four verses, and he establishes this undeniable call towards unity. Right? This is what he desires out of the Philippian church, right? that they should be of one mind, they should be of one love, right? they, they should have this unity that is really rooted in a strong sense of humility, right? that, that you should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Right? It is this call towards unity, this call towards humility that sets the tone for this Christ hymn. And I want us to have that in mind, because as Paul makes that assertion and as he makes that, that plea with this church, it's almost as if now he invokes this Christ hymn as an example, right? That Jesus is the one that is going to embody and be the perfect example for this call towards unity and humility, And that's important for us to gather and to to keep in mind because a lot of times you can run to verse 5 through 11 and just marvel at the poetry, marvel at the eloquence of it all, and and see it almost as a a unique section of scripture that is rich with theology and doctrine and Christology and all these things that are obviously very important. But what I want us to keep in mind as we study this over the next several weeks is that this section of scripture is not just there for theological uh, reflection. It's there as an ethical and practical guide to how to live. Right? This, this is Paul saying, here is your example. Right? Jesus is the one that embodies this humility. When you look at Christ, you find somebody that perfectly depicts the self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving nature of servanthood towards others. He is your model. He is your example. And so he sets that tone, which then leads us to verse 5, which is the perfect transition statement. It's a great bridge. It's a a verse that, that serves as a way for us to look back to what Paul has already said in the first four verses and look forward to what he's going to say in the following verses. He says, in your relationships to one another, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. That's a powerful statement. And so let's ask ourselves, is that true for us? Is it true for you? In your relationships to others, is your attitude the same as Christ Jesus? That's a hard thing for us to really reflect upon. And I know a lot of times when I think about the way that we treat others, especially the church, church as a whole, when we think about this collectively, and we think about the way that we treat the outside world, or we treat ourselves Uh, my impulse, whenever that question emerges, is to run to the latest statistic or the latest story that demonstrates that we often fail at treating others as we should, right? Like, I mean, there are so many different examples of this, and that is typically my impulse, but I'm going to refrain from offering the statistic of how many times we fail to live up to this reputation, because I think, on a couple of reasons, we already know that we've fallen short collectively as the body of Christ, don't we? We know that that our reputation in the eyes of the world and our eyes often even with each other continues to diminish in a lot of different ways, right? That we have failed on numerous occasions to treat others as Christ would want us to treat them. And as a result, it is leaving a negative mark on the church. We know this. You don't need another statistic. You don't need another story. The other reason I refrain from going into those statistics and stories is because I don't know that it actually produces the results that we need it to. I don't know that it actually solves what we hope it will solve, right? Because the more we talk about these generic statistics and we talk about it collectively as if it's just this this more comprehensive problem, then the easier it is for us to negate our own personal part in it, right? If it's a group problem, then I can kind of have this conversation and think, well, you know, it's not really me that's falling short. It's all these other people that are failing to live the way that they should live, and, and they're the ones that are giving a bad name to the church, and they're the ones that aren't treating people with the right attitude, and, and that way we can limit our own personal accountability. And so rather than go into statistics, rather than go into all those different types of stories, let's make it more personal. Let, let's try to really solve this on an individual level and ask ourselves, is my attitude towards others the same attitude as Christ? When you think about that, think about your relationships. Is your attitude towards your spouse the same attitude that Christ Jesus would have? Your attitude towards your children, towards your parents, towards your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, right? Acquaintances, friends, enemies. When you think about your relationships, do you reflect the attitude of Christ Jesus? Do you reflect this self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving servanthood that He embodies. That's what we're called to. Right? That's the life that we are called to live. And that's exactly what we should do with this Advent season. See, I think a lot of times the way we approach Advent is very similar to how we approach verses 5 through 11, right? We, we come to 5 and 11, and we see it as this beautiful depiction of theology and Christology, and we just kind of want to marvel at it and reflect upon it. And a lot of times that's what we do with Advent. We come to it with our traditions and with nostalgia, and we just want to marvel at the miracle of Christ's birth, when in reality we're called to learn from it. And so this Advent season should be a time where we should call into question, how do I learn from the appearance and the revelation of Christ in a way that helps shape me and change me and mold me so that I embody the same Attitude that Christ embodied to others. That's what we're we're seeing Paul urge here in verse 5. And so then that helps shift into verse 6, which gives us a greater understanding as to how Christ actually embodied that sort of attitude, that self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving servanthood towards others. And this is what I love, okay? So what does he say? He says, This Jesus Christ, who is the very nature of God. Did not consider that uh, equality with God was something to be grasped and to use to his own advantage, All right? So, so as we break that down, let's first just acknowledge the significance of the statement that Paul says here: Jesus is the nature of God. All right, That is very significant. The word <clears throat> that is used here is the word "morphē," and there's a thousand different ways that that word has been studied and parsed and examined and written about in a lot of different nuances that we could consider this morning, but in its simplest understanding, what Paul just said was that Jesus was God. Right? What he is emphasizing is the divinity of Christ, and that is incredibly important for us to never lose sight of. This is a point of the gospel that is reiterated time and time again throughout Scripture. The divinity of Christ. We see it in Colossians. right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. We see it in the book of Hebrews, right? He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Time and time again, we see that the scriptures clearly explain the divinity of Christ, and that's incredibly important for several reasons. Number one, it's only through the divinity of Christ that you and I find grace and mercy and find the perfect sacrifice that can take away our sin. It's the only way. Right, It takes that perfect sacrifice, and no one can claim that status and that level of perfection other than Christ. And it's because of his divinity that we can trust in that perfect sacrifice. And without that, you and I are still in our sins. He has to have that established perfection. But at the same time, the other thing that I love about this idea of Jesus being fully divine is that it reminds us of the sort of God that we serve. That we have a creator who wants to reveal himself. We have a creator that does not want to stay hidden, that doesn't want to stay concealed, doesn't want to stay mysterious. He wants to reveal himself clearly to you. Think of all the ways our creator has revealed himself. He reveals himself through creation. Through the majesty of the moon and the stars and the sun and the sky, so that men and women are without excuse, according to Romans. He reveals himself through the prophets, time and time again, revealing his holy word. He reveals himself through signs and wonders and miracles. He reveals himself through the sacred word of God, and he reveals himself ultimately and most perfectly through his son. And so, Advent is not just a time for our traditions. It's a time for us to gather together together, and to better understand our Creator and the way in which He reveals Himself and who He is. Jesus' divinity points us to the beauty of that nature and that character of our Creator. So He was the very nature of God, and yet He did not consider that equality with God was something to be grasped or used to His own Advantage. The key word there is the word seize or grasp. And that's what it means to seize something. And there's a lot of different ways that we could seek to understand what that implies then of Jesus. Right? One of the the ways that some scholars have interpreted this, but I think it falls short, is to suggest that that the, the equality with God was something that was desired, something that Jesus longed for, and he it's thought better of seizing it, right? Thought better than to grasp it. And essentially, with that sort of interpretation, you kind of put Jesus on the same playing field as Adam and Satan, right? Who, who tried to seize that power, who tried to seize that equality, but Jesus showed restraint. While there's an element of truth to that, it falls short of, of what it really means is because it denies the preexistent divinity and eternal nature of Jesus. Right? And so rather than this idea that Jesus just withheld the impulse to seize equality with God, what we see in this passage is that he actually inherently had it and refused to use it for his own advantage. And that's pretty significant. Right? That teaches us a lot about the nature of our creator and our own personal nature, because it says something very distinctly about who he is. Right? And, and I see this in a lot of different ways, especially when you compare a contrast to it with those that do often try to seize for themselves. So like so like when I think about parenting, um, man, it's hard being a parent. Can I get an amen? Right? Like, there are when you become a parent, you realize there are like a million and one things you are entrusted to teach your children. Like, and that's not an exaggeration. Like, that's how many they give you at the hospital. Here it is. Good luck. And you have all these lessons that you have to teach your kids, and it's a lot, and it's it's hard. And so inevitably, as parents, I know for me. You go through this stretch of trying to raise your kids and there are certain things on that list of a million and one things that you finally just go. you know what, I just, I don't, I don't know how. And I'm just going to kind of give in on that. Sure. Have another brownie. Enjoy your diabetes. Right? Like I don't, I don't have the energy and it's not that I'm not teaching you because I don't want, I just, I'm exhausted. Right? And I don't have the energy. So there's certain things that fall on that list where we just kind of give up. But then there's this other side to the list. You know what I'm talking about? we like, it doesn't matter when it happens how it happens. It's like your pet peeve. And the moment see, you see your children fall victim to one of these things, like you rise up and you immediately correct, okay? For me, on that side of the equation, one of the things that just will absolutely fire me up every single time is when I see one of my children grab something out of the hands of their siblings. Like it will fire me up instantaneously. I'm not talking about those moments where they go and play with a toy that's not theirs. I'm talking about like Somebody else is holding something, and another child comes and grabs it out of their hand without using words. Like, hey, could I please see this? Would you mind sharing that with me when you're done? Like, I cannot stand that moment because it fully depicts this kind of me-first mentality, right? It it is the perfect embodiment of I don't care about your needs, your wants, your desires. This is all about what I need for myself, right? And I, I correct that every time I see it. And it, to me, it serves as a great metaphor for how we live, even as adults. Right? We, we can camouflage it a lot better in adulthood, but don't you know that so many of us live life in a very similar mindset? Right? We look at what other people have, and we only see it through the lens of, how can this benefit me? And we'll do anything we can to try to seize it, try to claim it, try to position ourselves so that we can be the beneficiaries of what others have. And we look really only to our own interests only to our own needs rather than to the needs of others. This is seizing. This is the grasping that is so common to the human impulse. And what we have with Jesus is something radically different. What we find with Jesus is this character, this nature that does not seek to grasp, but gives. He comes to us with an open hand, not a closed one. I love the way that that teaches us about who he is. Let me read to you this quote that to me really, really serves as a great depiction of this passage and what to me uh, is so powerful about it. This comes from C.F.D. Mole, who argues convincingly that Jesus did not reckon equality with God meant snatching, but on the contrary, he emptied himself See, oftentimes we assume that Godlikeness means having your own way, getting what you want, but Jesus saw Godlikeness essentially as giving and spending oneself out. He did not consider that being equal with God was taking everything to himself, but giving everything away for the sake of others. Here's the part that I love. Precisely because he was in the form of God, he reckoned equality with God not as a matter of getting, but giving. And this then makes clear that contrary to whatever anyone may think about God, his true nature is characterized not by selfish grabbing, but open-handed giving. That's the nature of our God. What Advent teaches us and calls us to consider is to come to this manger scene and reflect upon the fact that a child was born, that a son was given. The essence of our God is to empty himself for you. And that's to me where it all comes together as we think about how to wrap this up on this first Sunday of Advent. I mean, if we think about the gift that is Jesus, what a gift. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what burdens you carry, what, what exhaustion you bring into this room, what stress, what distractions. But the fact is that Advent calls all of us, just as we sang, it calls those who are captive. It calls those who are mourning. It calls those who are in despair, who are shackled by the dark clouds of night and we come to this manger and we see that God has given himself to us just as we are. And So if there's any part of you that's here this morning that thinks this isn't for me, God doesn't see me, he doesn't care, I man, He he's given everything for you. That's what Advent teaches us. We have a God who saves. And at the same time, as we reflect upon that saving gift, what we find in Jesus is a model, an example. Right? I mean, the way that it it opens our hearts and our minds is that if this is our creator, and he created you and me, and we are made in his image, then why does he reveal himself to us? Why? Because he wants us to be in a relationship with him, He wants to save us so that we can be brought into that incredible love that he has stored up for us. And so Jesus comes to make a way, reveal a path so that we can experience and enter into that incredible relationship. But he also models for us what it means to live in his image. What it is to live this life as he intended it to be lived. In Christ we have that perfect example of how to model our lives we have the lyric that tells us this is what it's all for and so those moments where we begin to live life according to a different melody or a different rhythm and we lose sight of the point we look back to the manger we look back to the cross we say, oh this is what it's for this is what it's all truly about and i love that i've said this on so many occasions right I don't know what you believe. I don't know how you might be seeking or searching, what doubts you may have. But let me just tell you, I believe this gospel with my whole heart. That doesn't mean I don't have questions. It doesn't mean I don't have seasons of doubt. But when I look out across the globe and consider all the different ways that you and I can make sense of this life, how we can settle into a greater understanding of its meaning, its purpose. There's nothing that compares to this story. If I'm going to have to choose to put my faith in something, I will choose this every single time, to believe and know that there is a creator who wants to reveal himself because he loves us and calls us into that relationship and shows us that the greatest fulfillment that you're ever going to have the greatest purpose you're ever going to find, the greatest joy you're ever going to experience is not to, to put your mind and your body and your soul and your heart to the rhythms of some song that the culture is going to put in front of you, but to listen to his music, to listen to his song, and to show us that it is through that self-denying, self-sacrificing, self-giving way of life that we will find ultimate fulfillment because that's where we begin to live according to the image with which we were created. What an incredible way to live. This is the message of Advent. Is this the lyric and the melody that you're listening to? Is this what draws you in? My hope and my prayer is that we can gather together over the next four Sundays and listen over and over and over again to the beauty of what is revealed in Christ. That we can come and look upon the tree, not that it's just going to have presence but we would gather around the tree that made the manger, the tree that makes the cross, and we would see once again the very essence of the nature and character of our God, that for you and me, a child was born, a son was given. And the essence of our God and the essence in the way he's created us to be is to live a life that truly understands that in Christ it is better to give than to receive. Let that be the song that we sing today and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do love you. And we hope and pray that in the time that we spend together throughout this Advent season, God, we would be able to truly cherish and treasure the gift that we have in Christ. God, that you would help us to not fall into the cadences and the rhythms and the routines that distract. God, that we would be able to anchor ourselves in this gospel. Anchor ourselves in the hope that we have in Christ. God, that we would truly be able to see perfectly the self-giving and self-sacrificing nature that is in Jesus. And first and foremost receive the beauty of that gift to celebrate the incredible promise of receiving your son. But similarly, Father, that we would also use that gift as an example for how we live our lives. God, if there's any of us in here today where in our relationships we've fallen short and we have failed to demonstrate the attitude that is of Christ, help us to repent, help us to seek reconciliation with those that we've wronged help us to see their needs above our own. And God, may we also follow this example that we see in Christ by truly surrendering ourselves to others, to consider their needs above our own, and to celebrate the gift of this child, to never lose sight of the fact that the Son was given to save, to restore, to redeem. Each and every day, Father, may we live a life that more perfectly reflects your very character and nature and demonstrates to the world around us the power of giving rather than receiving. We love you, God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. And amen.